pray together. As we bow our heads, you know, isn't it good just to sing the praises of Jesus, to lift our voices to him? I just paused for a moment there as, as we were worshiping together and listened to our collective voices and just can't help but wonder uh, what a pleasing sound that must be in our Lord's ears and to know that he's, he's listening to us and receiving our praises and just to know that, that the songs we're singing this morning, that as you are lifting your voices, it's because of your great love for Jesus. And I was thinking about this imagery of a shepherd that, uh, that from the scriptures we know so well. And I thought, you know, it's kind of ironic because as far as I know, none of us have ever been shepherds and probably most of us don't hang out with shepherds. We don't see them every day. And yet it's one of the richest and most meaningful pictures we get of Jesus in the entire Bible. And, and it means so much to us, even though we're not well acquainted with it firsthand. And Anyway, all of that took me to John chapter 10, where Jesus said words that many of us know so well, and if we know them, I'm sure we cherish them. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then Jesus said this. He said, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. He's talking about the Gentiles, because at the moment he was speaking to his fellow Jews. And he said, I must bring them in also, that they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And you know, the one thing that's reminding us that there's one thing that binds us together here this morning through and, and, and over and above all the things that make us different. Where else would this particular group of people gather together week in and week out? We're all from different walks of life and stories and histories, but we are, thanks to Jesus, one flock with one shepherd. And we're part of a bigger flock that, that all answer and, and listen to the voice of that same shepherd. And it is good to belong to the good shepherd. And Jesus, we want to praise you this morning that, that you came, that, that, that you lived and died and rose again as we've just been so profoundly reminded through communion and, and, and made the way for all of our sin to be washed away. But you didn't stop there. You, you presented yourself to us as, as Lord and Savior, as King of Kings, but also as a good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep, but now leads and guides and feeds and directs us and, and pulls us back in when we go astray. And Father, I thank you this morning that, that among this gathered group of young and old, of sisters and brothers in the Lord, Lord, that we are one flock, that we belong to one shepherd, and that you have called us, Father, uh, different as we are, to do life with you together. Father, we've lifted our voices to you together in song. We've come to the foot of the cross in communion together, Lord, side by side as it were. Father, laying down our pride, acknowledging our, our humility, our need for Jesus, confessing our sins, Lord, all ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Father, now we open your word, and though one of us stands up here to speak while everybody else sits and listens, Father, we're still one flock and there's only one shepherd. And so, Father, I pray that as I speak and my brothers and sisters, Lord, our our friends and neighbors, all of us gathered here as we listen, Father, I pray that all of us will be paying attention, not to the voice of the preacher, but to the movement of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who lives within us, moves among us, and seeks to change us, Father, more into the image of Christ. Father, for that to happen, we need him today, as always, as we open the scriptures, to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, and to help us see Jesus. Father, may we, as always, see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word, and may we see Jesus only this morning 
as we study your word. And Father, when we leave, when we walk out these doors here in a little while, back into this beautiful day and this brand new week, and Father, we're edging ever closer to the the Easter season, Father, we want to do it. My prayer is that we would do it with genuine joy in our hearts, with renewed hope, with a fresh determination, Father, not to work hard to please you, but to live for your glory because you are such a good shepherd and you love us so very much. Father, it is Jesus this morning that we seek. It is Jesus this morning that we praise. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray as all of God's people say together, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, boys and girls, you can get on out for Children's Church this morning. If you're a guest today, I haven't even looked around to see if that might be the case, but if you are our guest, Children's Church is for the kids from five years old on up through second grade. They're going to go spend some quality time in God's Word, learning God's Word, as, uh, as is our aim here as well. And as the kids are making their way out, I want you to grab your Bible in whatever form you have it uh, with you this morning. And I want you to meet me once again in the Old Testament book of Ruth. I want you to meet me in the Old Testament book of Ruth, where we are now uh, several weeks into uh, this uh, this extended study, as I've said the past couple of Sundays, of the, of, of the two books in our Bible that are specifically named for and expressly tell the story of women. Two women who, though very, very different from one another, both in their own right and with God's working in their lives, became legitimate, genuine world changers. It is appropriate, it is accurate to say that today, those of us here, there is a respect in which as believers we are who we are, we know what we know, we have received what we have received because of these women and their participation in the master sovereign plan of God. And that's why I've been so excited to look at these stories. It's been fun already to, to sort of dig in, and we're going to take another uh, look at that today. And, and then after today, we're, of course, going to break for a couple of weeks. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, so we'll have baptism. The Sunday after that is Easter, so it, it seems appropriate to pause and perhaps observe Easter. So we'll do that a couple of weeks, and then we'll jump right back in to our study of Ruth and Esther after that. So with all of that, just by way of opening chit-chat, we need to get into God's Word this morning. We are in Ruth chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at roughly the first half of that chapter. I'm going to begin reading God's word this morning in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 13, where as you follow along in your Bible, this is what the word of God says. It says, now Naomi, remember Naomi has been the, the main character in the story so far. It says, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. Elimelech was her husband, he is now gone. And this man's name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I, I may find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, that is, Ruth, upon arriving that morning, said to this chief of the reapers, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And she came and has remained from the morning until now, and she's been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter, 
Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight? That you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work. And may your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. So this morning, I want to do something. I want to begin by doing something that is a personal rule I never, ever otherwise do. And that is, I want to invite you to go with me and peek at the final page of the story and the book of Ruth. As a rule, I never go and read the last, play, last page first. I never want to know the ending. But this morning, I'm going to break that rule. And in a moment, I will explain why. So hold your place. You're not going to have to go far. You're in Ruth chapter 2. Just turn the page, if that's what it takes, to get to the end of Ruth chapter 4. And the reason I want to do that is because as some of you may know, maybe many of you know, between where we are this morning in Ruth chapter 2 and where the story ends at the conclusion of Ruth chapter 4, these two people we've just been introduced or reintroduced to, Ruth the Moabitess and Boaz the wealthy landowner, are going to fall in love. And then they're going to get married. And when the story is all said and done, together they are going to have a son. And with that in mind, here's how the writer of the book of Ruth chooses to end the story. He ends it, she ends it, whoever wrote it, we don't really know, but chooses to end it with a genealogy. And here's the genealogy. Hang with me for just a moment and I'll explain. It says now, verse 18, Ruth 4:18. These are the generations of Perez. You don't know who Perez is, perhaps. Perez was one of the sons of Judah, who was a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the tribe of Judah. So we're talking about the line of the tribe of Judah in ancient Israel. Perez, to him was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashan, and to Nashan, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz. Now, hang on just a sec. This is free. I just want you to know this. Salmon, it says Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz is our you know, main character here now, one of our main characters. Salmon was actually married to Rahab from Joshua chapter 2. Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't, but I find that interesting. Salomon went, he was one of the spies, went into the land of Jericho. He ultimately ended up marrying Rahab the harlot. They have Boaz, this spectacular, uh, this wonderful, godly man. together. So they have him. To them is born Boaz. And then to Boaz, after marrying Ruth, here's where we're going, was born Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse was born David. In other words... The couple that just for the first time in Ruth chapter 2 met here in our text this morning ultimately will become, by the time this story is complete, the great-grandparents of Israel's King David, which also in turn means, if you know the story of the Bible, 
that they are therefore incorporated into directly in the line, the genealogical ancestral line that brought Jesus into the world. Now, I realize that for maybe a few of you, I've just spoiled the ending of Ruth's story because you've never read ahead before and didn't know all of that information. But I did it for a reason, and so if you're irritated that I spoiled the ending, forgive me, because here's the point I want to make, and here's where we want to go with this this morning. Because you see, a proper view of God's sovereignty, and I've told you each of the past two Sundays, one of the primary themes of the book of Ruth is the absolute, complete sovereignty of God, a, a, a biblical accurate view of God's sovereignty teaches us that one way or another that was going to happen. That one way or another, Ruth and Boaz were going to be married and they were going to be incorporated into the genealogical line that gave us King David and ultimately gave us King Jesus. That somehow or another that was going to happen because somehow or another God always gets his way. God being sovereign means God always gets his way. He is always working all things according to his plan. God is sovereign. But at the same time, another, perhaps the other, great theme of the book of Ruth is that even though God always gets his way, what God wants to happen is always going to happen. There are no surprises with him at the same time, another great theme of Ruth and another great theme of the Bible is that as God's people, we still have to make choices and that our choices have consequences and that we are responsible for the choices we make and the consequences, good or bad, that they bring our way. And while this side of heaven, it is impossible to to reconcile those two parallel truths in a truly satisfactory way. The absolute sovereignty of God and the total responsibility of men, women, and young people for the choices they make. The fact that we can't reconcile those in a way that just makes perfect sense to, to, to any of us, much less all of us, well, frankly, it doesn't make them any less true. They are both biblical truths. And, the, and despite the fact that now I've I've on one hand spoiled the ending of Ruth for some of you, and, and for many others of you perhaps introduced you to a theological headache you didn't want or need. The reason I did so is as follows, because in the story we're going to explore today, this story here in Ruth chapter 2, what we're going to see or go looking for here are some of the ways, listen, some of the ways in which Ruth and Boaz participated in the unfolding sovereign plan of God. The ways in which, as responsible people, they, they cooperated with, they participated in, they contributed to the plan God was working out to ultimately, as I said, bring Jesus Christ into the world. And that they did so, here's the thing, that they did so, they contributed to the unfolding plan of God by making some very simple, yet as I said a moment ago, very consequential personal Choices in what was otherwise a very ordinary day in each of their lives. But before digging in, I want to say one more thing. I just want to be absolutely clear in case I've introduced doubt into anyone's mind. By saying that the Bible clearly teaches. I've told you it teaches God's sovereignty. I've told you it teaches human responsibility. But I want to be clear that we also believe, and I wholeheartedly affirm, that salvation is entirely a work of God's grace. 
We contribute nothing to our own salvation. We don't earn our salvation. We don't merit our salvation. We don't, we don't, God doesn't do 99% and we add our little 1% in order to make sure we'll go to heaven when we die. It's entirely a work of God's grace. The only thing we do to receive it is repent of our sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. But the Bible also says that once we have done that, Philippians 2.12, we are to work out our own salvation here on the earth with fear and trembling. You are to work out the gift of salvation in your life. That is, apply it in each and every situation. Learn to take who you are in Christ and let it influence and change and transform your everyday life. And the reason I point that out is because going forward this morning, when I use words like contributing to the plan of God or cooperating with or participating in the plan of God, that's what I mean, yielding to him cooperating with him, responding to the things he brings your way in a way that will ultimately glorify him again in the happenings of everyday life. So with all of that, by way of introduction, here's what I want to show you this morning. A couple of things. I'm going to show you a couple of things, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to give you a big idea, and we're going to be done. The first one is this. I didn't say how long that's going to take. I just said that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> the first thing I want to look at this morning is I want to show you Ruth's contributions to God's sovereign plan. First of all, the contributions Ruth made, the, the ways in which, a couple of the ways in which she cooperated with God's unfolding plan. Now, when we talk about God's will for our lives, when we talk about God's plan for our lives, I think we all recognize that sometimes that means doing things, things that to us seem like really big stuff. It's boarding a plane for Africa to, to go do some missions work. It's, it's young people surrendering their summer to go to a place like East Iowa Bible Camp and, and teach children God's word and, and talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes following God's will for our life is, is demonstrated as seen in saying yes to the big stuff. But most days, most days following God's will for our lives simply means waking up and doing what has to be done. And when you've done the first thing that has to be done, you do the next thing that needs to be done. And then you do the next thing. And the thing after that, working out your salvation in the ordinary stuff of your life. Now back in chapter 1, what we saw last week, that's exactly what Naomi did. Remember, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two boys, they leave Bethlehem, their home, because there's a famine. They go to the land of Moab, a foreign land, a faraway land. And in that land, we learned that, first of all, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and then her two sons married Moabite women, and then very shortly after that, the two sons died. And, and so she's left widowed, childless. It's just her and these other two now young widows, and they're all together. And what we saw in chapter 1 is after all of those losses... Doing the next thing for Naomi meant waking up one day and saying, I heard there's bread back in Bethlehem, let's go. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what it's going to require of me. I don't know if it's going to go well or go poorly, but I got to do something. And so she got up and went. That's what following God's will for her life meant on that particular day. Now here in chapter 2, it's Ruth's turn. It's Ruth's turn to do so. And on this particular day in her life, it required at least two things. Number one, the first contribution, the first way in which Ruth participated in God's unfolding plan for her life can be summed up in one word, and that word is initiative. 
Ruth took personal initiative. Now, this story we're looking at this morning, which we're going to start digging into, exploring here in just a moment, will make a lot more sense to all of us if you understand that in the Old Testament law, specifically in Leviticus 19, if you want to make a note of it, but in Leviticus 19, it says that, that when, when harvest time came in the land of Israel among the 12 tribes, that, that landowners at harvest time, when they sent reapers out to harvest their field, were to leave the corners of all of their fields untouched. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Don't harvest the corners. Furthermore, the law of God said that if as the reapers are going through the field, gathering the grain, gathering the corn, whatever it is they're gathering, and they drop some of it, they are to leave it on the ground and not pick it up. And this, in turn, was God's safety net, so to speak. Because the reason the corners were left untouched and, and scraps were left on the ground is so that after the reapers went through, the poor of the land could come and gather for themselves. And that's God's way of ensuring, if his people obey the law, that everybody has something to eat. The poor were allowed to come. The reapers did the harvesting. The gleaners came after to collect whatever they needed in order to survive. And having committed herself to Naomi's family and Naomi's God last Sunday in what we saw, Ruth now has the right to do just that. And of course, verse 2 said, it's exactly what she did. Look at your Bible. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. And so off she went. Again, not knowing what was going to happen. Not knowing whose field she was going to land in. Not knowing if it was going to be successful, if she was going to come home at the end of the day with a full or an empty sack. All she really knew for sure is that she was committing herself to spending a very long day hunched over under the blistering Middle Eastern sun, hoping to collect enough food for she and Naomi to survive. Because she knew, if, if I don't do it, we don't live. If I don't go, we will die. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, what Ruth is doing here is so often what you and I don't or won't. And that is just take the initiative. Stop waiting for something good to happen to us. Stop waiting for some sort of blessing to fall in our lap and going and actually doing what in the normal course of everyday life has to be done in order to survive or to move forward or to get through the day. And what did verse 3 say? So she departed. And she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field. I, I love, I've told you before, I don't know Hebrew, so I rely on what I read about the Hebrew. But, but I'm told that the Hebrew, behind that expression, and this is the author's way of, of just using a bit of irony, literally says, she just so happened to happen upon. By chance, she chanced to step into... The author knows God's sovereignty. He's just having a little fun with us behind the scenes. But, but she came to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who we met in verse 1, who was of the family of Elimelech. And in doing so, one author puts it so well. He says, what happened in that moment was this, quote, determined not to eat the bread of idleness. That is to say, not to sit around waiting for somebody to do something for her. Determined not to eat the bread of idleness, Ruth walked right into the arms of divine providence. Determined not to eat the bread of idleness, she walked right into the arms of God's providence. And I wonder, how often have I, again, God always gets his work done. 
God always does what he wants to do, and he's going to finish the work he began in me, and he's going to finish the work he began on you. But how, how often do I hinder God's plan, God's good and perfect plan for my life, not by doing the wrong thing, but by just doing nothing in the face of uncertainty? I can't answer all the questions. I can't check all the boxes. I'm not, I'm not sure what to do, and, and so I don't do anything. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, be, be foolish and unwise and uninformed. There's plenty in the Bible about wisdom. But, but what Ruth is showing us here is that, listen, if you are going to participate in God's plan for your life, for his church, for this world, for the furtherance of the gospel, initiative is an absolute must. Initiative is an absolute must, and it must be accompanied. Secondly, this is Ruth's other contribution, at least the other one we're going to look at for our purposes today. And when we do so, it must be accompanied by a spirit of deep, sincere humility. Ruth's second contribution to God's unfolding plan was that she went out to work in a spirit of humility. And by humility, by being humble, I don't mean merely she was willing to go do humbling work scrap gathering, right? And, and, and that, that, that she, was, she was humble, that, that she had a, a humble spirit simply because she was willing to do something dirty and, and something that most people wouldn't do and everybody knows she was a poor person if she was doing it. Uh, that's not what I mean because we all know, maybe even a few of us have been the kind of person who every now and then we do really difficult, dirty work with a cranky heart. And, and it's, so it's possible to do humbling work and not be humble at all. But gripe and complain and moan and groan, which is just an inverted form of pride. It's saying, I'm too good for this. Somebody else should do this, but, but not me. Let me tell you something. It is impossible. Everybody say impossible. impossible. It is impossible to participate in God's plan with a proud heart. He knows, the Bible says, how to humble those who walk in pride. And if we go around proud, too good to do this, too important to do that, then we're going to have a hard time seeing God working in our lives, growing us, making us fruitful and useful. God is looking for humble hearts. And, and what we see here is, is that Ruth, doing humbling work, humanly speaking, had the humble heart thing figured out as well. Look at her words in verse 10. So Boaz comes along, and we'll talk more about Boaz here in a few minutes. He comes along, and, and he, he says some wonderful things to her, some unexpected things to her. And when he did, verse 10 says, what does she do? Well, she, Ruth, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And then he answers that. He says a few more things. And in verse 13, this morning's passage, the text we're looking at, the last thing we see Ruth saying is this, verse 13, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and you have indeed spoken kindly to your maidservant, even though I am not like one of your maidservants. I don't look like your people. I don't talk like your people. Everybody knows I'm not a Jew by birth. I'm not a Hebrew. I'm an outsider. I'm a foreigner. I'm a refugee. And yet that's not how you're treating me. Not at all. See, what Ruth knows in this moment is she's being shown grace. She just doesn't know why. Where is this coming from? Why would he treat me in this way? 
Simply put, Ruth's response to Boaz here is, you're treating me like someone we both know I'm not. Something I haven't earned, I don't deserve. Someone who is not worthy of such favor. Here's why that's important. Because it doesn't matter what circumstances you are walking through today, good, bad, or otherwise. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life, the particular situation you're going to have to face when you walk out the door this afternoon. It just doesn't. It matters. We care about it. But in whatever you are walking through today, here's what God's looking for from you. He's looking for humility. Isaiah 66.2 says it as well as, as anything we can find in the Bible. When the Lord himself says through the prophet Isaiah, he says, this is the one. Here's the kind of person on whom I will look with favor. Here is the one to whom I will look. One who is humble. One who is contrite in spirit. And who trembles at my word. That is, here's what I say. Reads what the Bible says. And then seeks by God's grace and help to go do it. And listen, if, if we want to be the kind of people who participate in the unfolding plans of God and give him, in doing so, every opportunity to work in, in us and through us and mold us and shape us and make us less like who we were without Jesus and more like who Jesus is because he's, he's in us, well, well, that's the kind of person we need to be. You need to be. I need, We need to be people of initiative, following God's word, responding to the spirit. And we need to be people of humility, who say, I, I may not know why God is treating me this way or asking this of me, but because he's God, I'll do it. Those are Ruth's contributions to God's unfolding plans. Now let's, let's look at the other side of the story, Boaz. And that's the second thing I want to show you this morning. Surprise, surprise. Boaz's contributions to God's unfolding plan. Because in the same way that Ruth did a couple of things that meant participating in, responding to, yielding to what God was up to, Boaz most certainly did as well. There are a couple of things here we want to see. Before I show you what they are, let me point out that in our English Bibles, if you go back and look at verse 1, our, our English translations of, of the Old Testament introduce Boaz in, in a variety of ways. Apparently, whatever the, the Hebrew terminology is behind this is not easy to bring into English. So, for instance, my Bible, when I read it for you earlier, the New American Standard said, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, whose name was Boaz. But as I searched other English translations of, of, of Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, he was described elsewhere as a worthy man, a man of standing, a man of great wealth, a wealthy and influential man. In other words, here's what the author of Ruth wants us to know. This ain't your ordinary Hebrew farmer. This guy was somebody unique. This guy was someone special. But, but due to where the, the author of the book of Ruth wants to take us, those are not the things that interest the writer of the book most. It's important we know that he's wealthy, that will come into play. It's important to know that he's, he's influential, a man of reputation, that will come into play later on as well. But at this point in the story, what interests the writer of Ruth's story most is a detail that, that probably would have been irrelevant, or at least seemingly on the surface unimportant to mo most of, of Boaz's contemporaries. Looking again at verse 1, I'll show you what it is. That Naomi 
had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. In other words, the thing we need to know about Boaz at this point, the most important thing we need to know is he's a blood relative of Naomi's late husband. That's going to prove to be a very big deal in the unfolding story. And what it means is that what began for him, just like Ruth, as, a, as an otherwise ordinary day in his life, running his farm, harvesting the crops, uh, taking care of his servants, and making sure the job is getting done that's supposed to be getting done, his very ordinary day, because of that one detail, is about to become something much, much more. Something incredible in God's unfolding plan. Because while he didn't know it at the time, he made two contributions to it as well. Number one, the first contribution we can see Boaz made to the unfolding of God's plan, yielding to it, and this may strike us as unusual to note at first, it certainly did me anyway, but was the fact that, that, first of all, Boaz was a man who paid attention. Boaz, his first contribution to this story was the fact that he was a man who paid attention. You know, I don't see a lot on my phone each week that, you know, when it comes up on my social media, Instagram feed, whatever, that makes me laugh out, literally laugh out loud. But every once in a while, something does. And, and this week, that happened. Actually, Friday, as I was writing my sermon, something like that happened. And I thought, you know, this is kind of relevant. So I'm going to share it with you. And you may not think it's funny, but I did. So, and I'm talking. So I'm going to share it with you anyway. Because what came up, and I'll throw it up on the screen here, but in case you can't read it, it is a photocopy. What I saw was a photocopy of a sign that had been placed in an employee break room at some major corporation that read as follows. Employees, a snack will be provided for you today in the food court in appreciation of your hard work, exclamation point. Today's snack, a banana. We spent 12 cents on each and every one of you today for your hard work. And I thought, you know, isn't that the way that we tend to think of big business? Isn't that the way we think that, that the big corporations and the people who run them roll, that they don't have time for the little people? They don't pay attention to the little people and their idea of showing massive appreciation to you is to leave a banana on the table for you to grab in that five-minute rest break you get in the middle of your day. And, and again, that's the stereotype that, that so many of us have about big, important people who run big, important organizations that they are often indifferent to, even dismissive toward the little people. But not Boaz. Not Boaz. Look again with me at verses 4 through 6. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He was in town doing some business, and now he's coming back out on his field to see how it's going. And he says to his reapers, may the Lord be with you. How many of your bosses, when they walk in the office each day, may the Lord be with you, right? But this was his style. And they respond in kind, and were led to believe this was all very sincere. It wasn't simply mere courtesy. They said to him, may the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Point being, here's a man who paid attention. This is a guy who's paying attention to what's going on around him and under his authority. And, and by the way, not paying attention because it looks like his foreman had hired a new employee. 
There was someone new on the payroll. That we maybe would expect him to notice, but he was a, a wealthy man, an influential man, a powerful man. No, he noticed, he was paying close enough attention to what's going on around him that he noticed, not among his workers, but among the poor people who were coming after them, digging around, hunched over in the corners of the field. Hey, there's somebody new. I, I pay attention to, to the poor who come my way, and, and she's a new one, and, and I want to know more. The kind of thing a man like him is not supposed to notice. And noticing apparently wasn't enough because by the time he spoke to her in verse 11, what does he know? Well, he says to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. How you left your father, your mother, the land of your birth, you left it all behind and came here to a people that you did not previously know. Now, the reason we need to pay attention to Boaz's attentiveness Note that he was a man who paid attention because, well, for one thing, as, as, as we have been learning through evangelism shift, those of us who have been trained in it and those of us who are going through it in life-to-life -life groups right now, what's the, the primary lesson in, in evangelism shift is this. Following Jesus means living as a witness. And if you're going to live as a witness, you have to pay attention to the people God brings across your path every day. The incidental, the apparently coincidental, the irrelevant, the obvious. Living as a witness means I'm, I'm sort of on alert at all times, eyes and ears open. Who's coming my way? Whose path am I going to cross? And is there any chance at all that they may need just to see a little bit of Jesus in me, in my eyes and in my voice and in my listening ears and in my actions? You know what that means? That means that in a sense, there's no such thing for an ordinary day as followers of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as an ordinary day in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if we're attentive to the people around us, to how they're doing, what they need, we ask just one more question. We, we choose, rather than chew out the, the cashier, the person who, they have it coming because they've screwed up my order. We don't. Because that's what everybody else does. But that's not what followers of Jesus do. Followers of Jesus model Jesus. Wherever they go. And they're attentive. And if we are attentive to the people around us and we are responsive in the moment to the Holy Spirit's prompting, you never know, God may well use you today to change someone's life. Just as he did here with Boaz. Boaz didn't wake up that morning and know, I'm about to enter into the sovereign plan of God that's going to bring a Savior into the world 2,000 years from now. And he just went to check on his reapers, but he noticed something. He was attentive. And, and along with that spirit of attention, the second thing we want to see, we need to see about Boaz, that made him a, a wonderful participant in the unfolding plan of God, was that he was also a man of great compassion. He paid attention, and he showed compassion. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, don't even go on from this one. Stay here with my maids, that is, the women that are on my payroll doing this work as their job. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants, that would be the male servants, to leave you alone, not harass you. And when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. In other words, from now on, Ruth, I'm taking care of you. From this day forward, Ruth, I will take care of you. I'm taking responsibility for you. Not to dominate you, not to subjugate you, not to exploit you. No, actually, 
actually to empower you, to, to elevate you. In other words, Ruth, here's what I'm saying. From this day forward, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure you have enough to eat. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make sure that, you know, the, 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 the no good guys, and the, then they leave you alone. I am, I'm going to give you all the privilege, that, privileges that the people who work for me have. You can walk in there confidently that, that this is a place you belong, because I said so. And guess what? Not only that, if you look at verse 12, he said, I'm even going to, guess what, Ruth? I'm going to pray for you, too. Verse 12, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. I'm going to pray that God blesses you. And well, to the best of my knowledge, I may have missed it, and if I did, I'm sorry, but to the best of my knowledge, he never uses the word that. What he is showing her is the hesed we talked about last Sunday. Those of you who are here will remember, I said that hesed is a Hebrew word, and it is the the primary Old Testament word that describes God's covenant love for sinners. The way God loves. And in fact, it's such a rich word, you can't get it into one or even a handful of English words. It encompasses grace and mercy and long-suffering and loving kindness and, and, and devotion and, and, and permanence. And all these things are wrapped up in it. Or in this case, it manifests itself in a spirit of compassion. The same compassion God shows each one of us was put our faith in Jesus. The compassion Boaz had toward Ruth is just a, an illustration of the compassion God has for us. And listen, especially men, I want you to listen to me this morning. No man can be a man of God without compassion. No man can be a man of God if he is not seeking to cultivate a spirit of compassion. I'm not saying that every time something happens you have to come to tears. I'm not talking about emotion. I'm saying compassion. A concern and a care for other people that moves you to action for their good, even at your own personal expense. You cannot be a man of God if you are not a compassionate man. And so we need to be attentive to that. We need to pay attention. We need to be people, men, women, young people, of compassion. And while there are all kinds of ways we could go from here, and there's so much more in the story I'd like to dig out, the way I want to try to move it all to a close this morning for our last few minutes is, is simply by giving you, showing you Ruth's two contributions, Boaz's two contributions. I want to bring this to a close by asking all of us a couple of questions. A couple of questions I want us to consider before we close our Bibles and, and be on our way. Question number one Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Not did you come to church this morning. Not have you been coming to church for a while, but have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you humbled yourself before the Lord and said, you know, I may be a lot of things, good, bad, and ugly, but what I really am is a sinner in need of a Savior. Today I repent, and I, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and that death and resurrection that Scott told us about this morning, and we're going to celebrate in two weeks, that that was for me. Boaz said to Ruth, uh, you know, you've, you've come to this land to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ? And if not, today would be the day to do so. There's no time like the present to surrender to Jesus Christ. Jesus said it himself. He said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, and I will give you rest for your souls. It takes humility and initiative. Humble your heart, respond to Jesus. 
We've taken refuge in the Lord. Secondly, for all of us, those of us who are among the followers of Jesus, how can you show someone has said today the compassionate, covenant, gracious, merciful, proactive love of God? Listen, I didn't say how can you show someone has said this week, tomorrow, today. Because in one sense, it's just an ordinary day. But in another sense, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's no such thing as an ordinary day. And chances are, I don't know where, when, or how, but chances are you're going to encounter somebody today who needs a little peek at Jesus from you. Maybe they need a big peek at Jesus in and through you. They need to see the love of Christ with skin on. Who could you visit? Who could you call? Who could you take to lunch? Who could you minister to before you even walk out the door here, while you're still in this room? Whose life, here's what I'm asking, whose life could be changed today by your attention and your compassion? After all, what did Jesus say to us in Matthew 5? He said, you're the light of the world. So let your light shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works and in turn glorify your Father in heaven. Live in such a way that people want to fall in love with Jesus. Be such an attentive, compassionate, humble, initiative-taking follower of Jesus that others look and say, well, I don't know what they have, but I think I like it and I think I want it. And, and somehow I'm going to figure out, well, we can tell them. Because here's the thing. Behind our otherwise ordinary days, the sovereign God is working out plans. Nothing surprises him. History is not a mystery to him. He knows exactly where it's going. He's working out a plan, and the plan will be accomplished. But our part, as today's big idea says, is this. It is to act, act on the opportunities God gives us to serve others. Act on the opportunities God gives us to serve others. That's what Ruth was doing when she went to the field. That's what Boaz was doing when he went to Ruth really what Jesus did when he came here. Took the opportunity, the sovereign plan of God, to serve us by dying and rising for our salvation. Father, every week we talk when we get together about being followers of Christ, witnesses for Christ, servants of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we mean it. We really do. Father, we want to live in this world as world changers, whether that means something very big or something seemingly ordinary and small. But Father, I think most of us would say where the, where the plan often breaks down, it's not with the knowing, it's with turning the knowing into doing. And Father, that's where we need your help today. Father, you're going to do what you're going to do, and, and you... You have designs to use us and grow us and change us and all the rest. And, and through all the plans you're working out, they're all meant to give glory to Jesus. And Father, as, as believers, we want to be walking in step with you. We want to be useful to you. We want to be growing in you. And, and Father, at the same time, we, we desperately need your help to get up, to rise, and to walk, and to do it. Father, I pray for us today that that you will help us be attentive to, to the people you're going to bring across our path in this room, in our home, at the store, at the park. Whatever it is, wherever we're going today, Father, not in an uptight, overthinking it kind of way, but simply walking into each new opportunity and saying, Lord, if, if you want to use me here today, I'm willing to be used. Father, I pray you take the things of truth that we have explored here this morning and that you would Seal them in our hearts and, 
and move them, as we said, to our hands and feet. And Father, I pray you take everything else that is distracting or confusing or anything else of the flesh and you just cause it all to, to be forgotten, that we would walk out of here thinking and seeking and serving Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.